Thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If there's one thing I've learned um, in the past, that we've learned in the past three years in Northern Virginia, it's that favorite hymn of uh, Jordan's over here, that the truth that, um, that in Christ, God is restoring all things that were ruined in Adam. Um, and just real quick before we dive in, our, our text for, for today will be the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, let me grab my water real quick, sorry. <clears throat> But um, before we dive in there, I just wanted to thank all of you. On the way here, I realized this might be our, this probably is our last time meeting with you all for worship. Um, didn't realize that until like this afternoon and kind of heartbroken by it. But I just wanted to thank you all for your friendship, um, for your encouragement, the way you've loved me and my family, kids, the way that you've loved Abigail and and uh, have played with her and had fun with her. I just want to thank you all for, for that. And we're excited to see what God does through um, this assembly in Northern Virginia and hope to maybe be coming back. So we'll find out. So, so let's, let's jump in. Um, there are many great accomplishments that came with the Reformation um, that began over 500 years ago. Um, we could talk about the way the Reformers recovered the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, or how the Reformers recovered biblical worship. We could talk about how they reformed the, ch- the government of the church. Uh, we could talk about all these really great topics. Uh, but there's one area that's always glanced over, I, I feel like, that the Reformers restored, and that is the topic of work. Um, and 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 off and um, then the important thing to know is that the the Reformation and its return to Scripture and in its return to the the full orbed gospel of Jesus Christ it brought effects on the everyday life of both the church the individual and the community at large. Um, the Roman Church had an effect promoted the idea that if one desired to be truly holy or to do real actual work or to experience real tangible salvation, that a person must serve the kingdom of God strictly through the institutional church. And the way this looked like was to become a a nun or a monk or a priest or, you know, um, an ascetic or or whatever it is. If you wanted to do real work, it had to be through the institutional church. And so the role of the mother, of the handyman, of the scientist, all these roles were were secondary. They they weren't primary. And this is all all bad. Because we understand here that the role of the institutional church, the role of the leaders of the church, of the pastors and of the elders, is not to be served themselves by the congregation. That the institutional church is not the point. The point of the institutional church is to equip the saints, to equip their congregation, the rest of the church, to use whatever their area is, whatever their gifting is, to serve and to build the kingdom of God. And so the Roman church got that completely backwards. But the reformers, on the other hand, understood that there's a biblical connection between the, the, the gospel, the resurrection, new creation, and, and the idea of vocation. And so the mother and the handyman and the scientist and others served a vital role in the kingdom of God, and their work was not in vain for the reformers. Um, this, I believe, is one of Paul's main points in, cha- in chapter 15 of Corinthians, which we'll be looking at. Um, so if you want to turn there, um, we're going to be principally looking at verses 12 through 26, although we'll be covering parts from the whole chapter. Um, but Paul, writing to the whole church, that is mothers, cooks, 
uh, janitors, uh, politicians, whoever, whoever these people were, the whole church, he assures the church that the bodily resurrection of Christ has indeed taken place. And because of this, they have a hope that their faith and their daily work, which are all anchored in, in God's whole word, that all these things are faith in their work, that they are not in vain. And so if you would please turn with me there, if you haven't already. Um, well, we will read that, but before we do, let's, let's go ahead and go to God in prayer to bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And in your word, you point us to your son, who is the giver of true, real life. And so we pray that you give us your spirit to illuminate our minds so that we may understand your word. And I pray that you would please bless me as I open up your word and try and explain what it's saying. Simply and, and, prof- and, and not profoundly, but just simply and, and, and um, in a way that we can use to glorify you, Father. So please give us your spirit to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 26. Paul says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. These are the words of God. So Paul's desire in this chapter is for the church to know that the resurrection of Christ is a historical fact. That it is verified by the scriptures through prophecy and witness, and that this historical fact matters. It matters because if Christ has been risen from the dead, then we know that there is a present kingdom and an already begun resurrection with necessary consequences and implications for the church and for the world today. Let's quickly go back to uh, verses 1 and 2 in this chapter. Here's what Paul says. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, 
what, what Paul means here, what, what does Paul mean here when he says that um, the death and resurrection of Christ are of first importance? I think, it's, I think it's easier to answer that question by explaining what he does not mean. Okay, so what does Paul not mean? Paul is not saying that the death and, re- death and resurrection of Jesus are alone important. He's not saying that the death and resurrection are the only things that are important and that we should forget everything else. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus exhaust the contents of the gospel. Okay? Brothers and sisters, let's, let's get this straight. We cannot exhaust the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't, you can't exhaust the content of Christ's gospel. Because we, we, we know that the scriptures present to us a big gospel. As we've pointed out here time and time again, this is the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel is good news that is to be proclaimed, and we cannot even begin to exhaust its contents. For the sake of brevity, brevity sometimes we might go ahead and... and um, sum up the gospel on the life and death and uh, resurrection of, of Jesus. And that's completely fine. That's what Paul is doing here. But we must not get confused with those who would tell us that we must just preach the gospel when all they mean is that we must just preach justification by faith. As crucial and as central as justification by faith is, it does not exhaust the content of God's gospel. The good news of the gospel not only includes the conception, birth, life, active obedience, death, burial, resurrection, you you get the point. It also includes the results and the implications that these historical realities hold out for us. The resurrection and thus the gospel is of first importance because of what they mean for you and what they mean for the future, for history itself. As an example, King, King Herod understood this, okay? King Herod understood this, as, as we should. The scriptures tell us that at the news of the infant King Jesus, King Herod was greatly disturbed. Okay, King Herod, he, he, he was disturbed and anger, angered at the news of an infant king. At a ba- and so disturbed and angered by it that he had every single child in Bethlehem slaughtered. Okay? Why, why did he do this? Because he understood that the pro- proclamation of the birth and, and the conception of Jesus Christ, the infant king, was not just a cute little historical doctrine to put in his back pocket. He got that. And that's why he did what he did. Um, These words of the proclamation of Christ's conception and and, and birth as we celebrate in Christmas, they are fighting words for Herod, as they are for us. They're fighting words. They're the proclamation of a new kingdom that will topple Herod's kingdom if he does not bow the knee to Jesus. And in the same way, the resurrection of Jesus isn't, isn't of first importance just because it's a cute historical reality. Paul's point is that the death and resurrection of Christ are linchpins, linchpins for our present and future hope. And that these have huge implications for us in our present day. Without Christ's resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep have perished, and our faith and our work, our everyday work that we strive after, are all in vain, making us most to be pitied of all people. But with Christ's resurrection, we are not pitied. Everybody else should be pitied. Because we have a strong ground to stand on. Salvation is granted to us, and our everyday work has a purpose in it. So in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that there are two main reasons why the resurrection is of first importance. First, if Christ is not raised, then we have no hope in a future resurrection. Second, if Christ is not raised, then our faith and works are all futile. They're all in vain. There's, there's no point to them. 
is clear that the resurrection of Christ and the general resurrection of all believers are necessarily connected. And this is Paul's point, the beginning of what we, what we just read. We can't separate Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, okay? Paul makes two points. He gets wordy. He kind of repeats himself, but this, these are the two points he makes. He says, if Christ is not resurrected, then neither will we be resurrected. And number two, he says, and if we will not be resurrected, then Christ was never resurrected. They're, they're woven together. And they're woven together because they're part of one resurrection. If you lose one, you lose them both. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of a general resurrection. And so Christ's resurrection uttered into the middle of history 2,000 years ago the future hope of an entirely new creation where God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Understanding this is crucial, brothers and sisters. In eating, God dwelled among his people in a special, very real, covenantal way. And heaven, which is a place of God's special dwelling, and earth, being the place of man's dwelling, were in a very real, real way connected together. This is why we see God walking among, among the, the garden with his people. Um, man was to take dominion of the earth and the close presence of God. That's, that, that was the purpose of the Garden of Eden. God was with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. But with the entrance of sin into the world... Adam and Eve were cast out of this special presence of God in which they were to work and to, to till the ground and, and to produce good works for God. And they were cast out of it into a world where death ruled, where sin ruled, and heaven and earth were completely at odds, but not without a future promise. The Old Testament is chocked full of, pro- of the promises of God concerning a future where death is completely destroyed and real, um, glorious, um, physical life is enjoyed in the presence of God. When Christ was conceived in the Virgin Mary, the King of Heaven, the God of Israel entered into his creation, heaven coming down into earth. In the resurrection, a piece of, of the future new creation was introduced into the middle of history. When Christ ascended okay, and sat at the right hand of God, he did so fully man as a fully part of God's creation, in a sense, entering into the special presence of God again. And then when the Spirit is poured out on the earth, again we see God's special presence poured into His people. The reconciliation of heaven and earth has begun, and we're, we're a part of it. The resurrection of Christ is key because the future promise of a new creation is not simply a future promise that we get no taste of today, but it's a present reality that will one day be completed when God's purposes in history are brought to completion. The future new creation is now begun in the middle of history. The harvest has begun, and Christ is the first fruits. Paul's letters, um, Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament are filled to the brim with this sort of knowledge, brothers and sisters. Reform, uh, Reformed theological, uh, theologian Greg Bonson provides a helpful summary of all of these passages. And I'm not going to quote all the passages, but I'm going to read Greg Bonson's summary here because I think it's helpful. If you want the verses that go with them, uh, free, feel free to text me or email me and I'll send them to you. And here's, here's what Bonson says. Or Facebook me. I, I don't have actual Facebook, but I have Messenger. <laughs> uh, Bonson says, from the perspective of the new te- of New Testament theology, the age to come has broken in on this age. Those who are saved now enjoy the presence of the future age. With the first advent of Christ, God's ordained moment has arrived. The kingdom has drawn near. 
the great jubilee has arrived. The good news of the kingdom has come into full effect. The Old Testament promise has been realized, and the Messianic marriage supper has approached. With the coming spirit at Pentecost, the last days of Joel's prophecy have arrived, and God's anointed is declared to be permanently enthroned in David's kingdom. This spirit is our down payment on the future inheritance and the first fruits of the resurrection order. The kingdom of God and the coming age have been installed. He continues, he says, Consequently, the ends of the ages has arrived. The eschatological, that means the, the, where this thing is going, age has already begun, which means that this age and the age, age to come are coexistent during the present age. God's kingdom of salvation is already experienced by some, but rejected by others. This coming age and this, the coming age and this age live side by side for a time. The redemptive work of, the work of Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness, that is, from the present evil age. Being in Christ, in contrast to being in the evil one, means that the new creation has dawned, making the old things new. Therefore, it is now possible for men to taste the power of the coming age. Two orders. Old creation and new creation, spiritual death and regeneration, damnation and salvation are presently operative. And the Bible expresses this fact by teaching that the this age and the coming age are currently contemporaneous, unquote. And again, brothers and sisters, this is not just a fancy idea for us to dwell on. This has enormous implications for us. Let's continue reading what Paul says in verse uh, 17. Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man comes death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul says here that the resurrection... Um, that, that if the resurrection is not a reality, our faith is futile, we are still dead in our sins, and we have hope only in this life. As a result, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we're believing in a kingdom and working for a kingdom, actively working for a kingdom that doesn't exist if Christ is not raised. But because of the resur resurrection, the opposite is true. Those who are not in Christ are working for their own kingdom that will not last. Okay? Their faith in themselves in the state, in, 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 in human beings. It's all in vain because it's all going to collapse. Those who remain in Adam remain in the state of sin and death, but those who are in Christ take part in life and new creation both now and in the future. Which brings us back to Paul's proclamation in uh, verses 23 through 27. Here's what Christ, uh, Paul says. He says that Paul. Uh, he says that each is resurrected in his own order. Christ, the first fruits; then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemy, all his enemies, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
And so your work today matters, church. It matters because your spirit wrought daily work is being used by Christ to build his kingdom that he'll one day hand over to God the Father. It's a Trinitarian work. Christ builds his kingdom by his spirit working through you and your everyday life, whatever your work is, whatever your vocation is, wherever you're at in your life, he's doing that by his spirit handed over to the Father. And so when Christ hands over the kingdom to his Father, he is handing over the results of his rule that through his spirit, his church has worked to bring, bring on earth his will and his kingdom on the earth. And what this means for you today, I'm going to pick on the mothers for a second. What this means for mothers is that all your work today as mothers matters because of Christ's resurrection. Christ, your resurrected king, is ruling now and is working through you as a mother, as a part of his church, to bring about his will on earth. When you're raising your children, when you're raising your covenant children, you're not just raising them to save their souls. You're not just pointing them to Christ. But you're, you're building agents in the kingdom of God. Okay? Along with this, Christ is working in you by his spirit to bring about his will on earth so that he can hand over these children and the results that these children will produce in history over to the Father. This means that every poopy diaper, all right, every math problem you work through, every grueling discipline case you have to deal with when your child loses their mind and you have to correct them and give them the gospel and maybe spank them, whatever you have to do, that all of that is not purposeless but has a purpose. If, if your work as a mother is submitted to Christ Jesus, the Lord, um, he will not allow it to be in vain. Paul says that all things are in subjection under his feet. And when he says all things, he means all things, like we read from Psalm 8. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, blessed them, and commanded them to subdue the earth and to take dominion, which is loving, purposeful care. And he, he commanded them to do this over all that he had made. But of course, Adam failed. He failed at his task, and instead of bringing um, a life into the world, he brought sin and death into the world. But Christ, on the other hand, as the second Adam, he effectually subjects all things under his feet. So anything in any institution that's against Christ, he puts underneath his feet, and he demolishes, he destroys throughout history through his church, through you, church. And everything that is good and lovely, he builds up, and he cultivates for his kingdom. Every aspect of your life, if it's submitted to the Lordship of Christ, has a purpose in the kingdom. Whether you're a carpet cleaner, real estate agent, business CEO, whatever you are, if you submit your work to the governance of God the Son, your work will not be in vain. And I, I don't say this real quick, guys. I don't say this uh, for the other people out there. I say this for us. I say this for me. Because we, we often... Um, when we have to discipline our children or we, we, you know, we have to do something at work that just, just seems tedious and just, what's the point? We often lose hope and we often become lazy or we become complacent because we don't see the purpose in all this. But God promises that, that those minuscule things will not be in vain. This is why we have hope for today, but also especially in the future. It is also why we don't lose hope, and, but instead stay, uh, stand steadfast in our work. Though daily work may seem like a burden, and we don't see how 
God is using any of it for his purposes, we know that in Christ, in Christ's kingdom, all those things will have a purpose. Though we may suffer today under the rule of tyrannical man, we know that their tyranny is ultimately in vain, and our being under their tyrannical rule is not in vain, because their tyrannical rule will end. But our, we, will, we will be resurrected through that suffering. Though we may strive time and time again in works such as the abolition of abortion or, or whatever it is we're working for and we just don't seem to see any fruit, we know that God will not let our work be in vain. Just like the, the, the widow in, in, in Christ's parable that went to the politician and over and over again did not lose hope and demanded righteousness and justice. She got what she called for because she did not lose hope. This is Paul's point in verses 29 through 34. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no purpose in striving. There's no purpose in suffering. There's no purpose in death. There's only emptiness and purposeless, purposelessness. But with the resurrection, we know that after death comes resurrection. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, Paul says. So Christians are to be a people marked out by crucifixion and resurrection. A cross and a crown. We are, to, we are to daily crucify our old identities who are wrapped up in Adam and sin and death. And we are to put on um, the good works that God has created for us before the foundations of the earth. We can die daily because we know that faithful death will ultimately result in faithful resurrection unto glory, both now and in the future. Our modern culture, however, is much like the culture in Paul's own day. Most have hope in this life only. And this isn't hard to identify. We live for today only in our culture. We rack up thousands of dollars of debt, both as individuals, as families, and as, as, a, as a government, as a nation, so that we can be satisfied today and build our own kingdoms. No one has a long-term outlook. No one cares about tomorrow. Nobody cares about their grandchildren, except to give them candy and waste money on that sort of, sort of thing. Well, candy's good, but... Suffering and death are viewed as, as foolishness in our society. Striving itself is useless unless it's for our own pride in our culture. It's, not, it's for nothing beyond our own pride or to build our own kingdoms. As Christians, however, we don't understand that victory comes through suffering. The crown, the, the crown doesn't come unless we go through means of the cross. We sacrifice today so that our children and our children's children and our children's children's children may experience blessing in the future. We strive today knowing that our efforts are not in vain because they're invested in a kingdom that has no end, unlike our culture. We die to ourselves today so that we might have true life tomorrow. We destroy uh, nearsightedness. We destroy selfishness and laziness because we know that the work of Christ, work, the work that Christ does through us, will one day be presented to God. And finally, Paul emphasizes the need for the comp, uh, consummation or completion of our bodies and the future resurrection. The kingdom in its delivered state over to God the Father cannot be entered by flesh and blood derived from Adam. It must, be, it must be entered in by bodies that are in the likeness of Christ's new body. We need completed bodies that are unstained from sin. We need real, tangible, resurrected bodies that can enter this consummated and completed kingdom. A completed kingdom requires a completed body. What we have now, brothers and sisters, is perishable, but what will be raised will be imperishable. 
It will be more alive, more powerful, and a more glorious body than the body we derived from the dust in Adam. Our new bodies will be perfectly imaged after the body of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of what Christ meant for man to be. And these new bodies, unstained from sin, will be ready for service in God's new kingdom. In closing, we might agree with Calvin. Calvin said, Christ came to restore everything ruined by Adam. Or as uh, John says in 1 John 3, 8, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The gospel and the resurrection are of first importance. They are not of first importance because they are means by which we may escape from the world. The proclamation of the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins are a proclamation... uh, or a proclamation of resurrection and forgiveness of sins for the whole of man, the whole of the world, not just our souls, but our bodies and our souls. We preach the gospel that the whole man might be forgiven, that the whole man might be brought to new life and devoted to work in the kingdom of God and new creation. Sin affected everything, brothers and sisters. Everything you look at is infected by sin. But resurrection brings back new life into everything in subjection to God. In Christ, we are able to taste and participate today in the future new creation that God will ultimately complete. Your work today matters. Wherever you're working, it matters, as minuscule as it might seem. If you are united to Christ, obedient to his law, and building for his kingdom and not your own, then Christ will ensure that it is, that it is not done in vain when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So we have to ask ourselves, are we a new creation in Christ? Are we working for a kingdom that has no end? Or are we still dead in our sins? Are we still acting like we're dead in our sins? Viewing our work as useless, pointless, no matter how small it is. Are you working working to build your own kingdom? If you're working to build your own kingdom, it's being done in vain. And this is how Paul closes his entire chapter on the resurrection. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your new creation that you've already begun. We thank you that you've given us your word to give us new life. We thank you that you have not abandoned the work that you've created in the world, but that you are restoring all things. We thank you, God, that you have a purpose for history. You have a purpose for today. You have a purpose for tomorrow. You have a purpose for the next 200 years. And we thank you that you have called us to be a part of that work. We thank you that you have justified us by faith, that you have given us your spirit, and that you are not just escaping us from the world, but you are using us to build your kingdom on the earth. We pray that you would bless us as we go out from here, that we would live and work, change poopy diapers and, and, and clean floors and, and, and uh, work in our businesses and, and, and whatever area we're in. We pray that you would um, bless us as we go do those things, that we might do them as new creations in Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name.